Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International and Airs LA, the audio internet reading service of Los Angeles. Tonight, we have a fantastic, I mean, a fantastic guest that I'm certain that you're all going to really enjoy listening to her as she talks to us about guide dogs and how guide dogs can really be very helpful for us with our mobility. And she is the one and only Janine Stanley. Welcome to the show, Janine. Oh, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Oh, that is great. That is great. Well, let's go ahead. I'm going to turn it over to Robert, who's going to go ahead and do an announcement, and we'll begin shortly after. Robert? All right. Well, I'm going to introduce Janine and read her bio here for y'all. Thank you. Janine Stanley served as the Consumer Relations Coordinator at the Guide Dog Foundation and America's Vet Dogs for 11 years. While there, she constructed training for TSA agents regarding screening service animals and took part in the rulemaking surrounding the definition of service animal in the Air Carrier Access Act. Janine also interviewed many people applying for guide dogs and assisted them in personal advocacy situations involving their dogs. She has been a guide dog handler for 34 years, and her husband, Kent, is a low-vision guide dog handler. Janine, welcome to our program. Thank you very much, Robert. (laughs) Wow, that is a really very, very impressive introduction. And, you know, before we go on, I'd like to get a little bit of clarification. What does that PSA abbreviation stand for? Oh, that is the TSA. That is the Transportation Security Administration. So all those lovely folks at the airport that you have to go through before you can get to your gate. Um, I did a lot of work with them when I was at the Guide Dog Foundation and America's Vet Dogs in being sure that they knew how to screen people with service animals because there was a lot of confusion. And, of course, this was before we had, um, you know, the change in the Air Carrier Access Act that happened this January. So it was crazy. And, uh, you know, they were screening everything from our guide dogs to peacocks and and uh, pigs and, uh, you know, all sorts of craziness. Uh, a wallaby, you know, lots of cats um, that were supposed to be, you know, service animals. And. You can only imagine the the insanity. So, you know, they were asking for some help, and we were able to do that. So that was uh, that was a fun time, actually working with them. And we did a lot of trainings at uh, JFK Airport and LaGuardia Airport for the TSA folks. And so that was also fun because Guide Dog Foundation is based on Long Island. Um, I, of course, am here in Columbus, Ohio, so I've worked remotely for a long time. Uh, quarantine was nothing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> nothing for me. <laughs> wow. And so I take it that in the past, a lot of people were bringing their pet animals onto the airplanes and claiming that these are 
a guide animal, a service that animal? They, that they were a service animal or an emotional support animal that they needed because they had, say, a fear of flying or they had anxiety disorders and they would get... It wasn't everybody, but a lot of people with the more exotic animals would get fake letters. And then some people who take their dogs to dog shows would claim that they were service animals so they didn't have to pay the pet fee. And oh. this would be occasionally people with more than one animal. And probably the most infamous one was somebody had six boxers. Now, boxers are not small dogs. Oh, no. <laughs> they had six of them, and they claimed they were all service animals. And, you know, they had these dogs on the plane. They were not trained to be on the plane. They were show dogs, so they weren't really happy about being on the plane. And they weren't the only ones on that plane with dogs. Um, and luckily, a lot of that has been curtailed with the change in the rules that I was really proud to be a part of. Um, some, some folks with guide dogs are not real happy about the changes because there's a form you have to fill out now. But we can talk about that. That's, um, that's one of those little, okay, because people were basically trying to pull a fast one, you know, now we all have to fill out this form, like it or not. So, you know, we, I'm happy to talk about that, but um, it's sort of the price we had to pay um, to get rid of the fraud, unfortunately. You know, but that was a lot of my job, too, was sorting out, you know, sorting out all these things. It and, is. Yeah. It, it's really a shame, though, when people are trying to pull a fast one like that. And I would imagine it has to be so uncomfortable at the airport sure. when a person is trying to bring on all of these animals and they're not service mm -hmm. animals. And then you, with the legitimate service animal, get scrutinized. And to all the folks here on the show who are low vision, you guys really can get the, the best of both worlds, the worst of both worlds, because one of the things that happens is, you know, you use your vision when you can and when it's when it works for you to use it. And people see that and you know, just whether you have a dog or not, that sometimes people, well, you're not blind. You don't look blind. You could read that sign over there. Or, well, how did you know there was a seat right there? You could see it. You're not blind. And so you guys would get the third degree, which is oh. definitely not fair. And that, and then of course the people who would fake it would learn just enough to wear their dark sunglasses and pretend they couldn't see or pretend they were low vision. And so it really, I mean, it really hurt the low vision population with guide dogs when people did these kind of things and continue to do these kind of things. Oh gosh, that, that yeah. That that's that's had to have been a very difficult task to be doing that for so many years it it was hard I, you know it i sort of gamified it and said okay you know when we can win something then that's good and we're gonna we're gonna battle this with our gaming swords and all those things <laughs> and superpowers <laughs> until we can you know get this turned around and hopefully we're on the way there hopefully we are but you know, there's so much good that service animals can do people. I hate to see people who can really benefit 
not do so because they think, well, I have too much vision or, you know, I don't I don't want to get a guide dog and take it away from somebody else. Trust me, there are plenty of dogs to go around. Oh, is <laughs> that right? Are, there really are? Oh, yeah, there are. Absolutely. There are at least 12 guide dog programs <clears throat> in the United States alone. <clears throat> Excuse me. There are three of them in Canada, at least three. I think there might be four. Um, and so there are a lot of dogs. And within that big number of dogs, now some schools are smaller than others, but generally there are a lot of dogs to go around. And so you're not taking one away from somebody. And the dogs all have different abilities and work differently with different people. So the chances of you getting that right dog are really good if you communicate with the guide dog school. So that's your first hurdle is to get over that notion that, well, you know, totally blind people deserve guide dogs more than I do. No. I mean, maybe some people, I don't know, but everybody deserves the right to try to apply for a guide dog and try to make that process work. So, oh, now. Really, yeah. That is actually really very, very good to know. And, you know, just to very briefly, I don't want to take any, you know, mm -hmm. too much of your time, but I, I used to be an eye doctor. And I specialized in low vision. And I noticed that my vision was changing. And so I went to see a ophthalmologist who specialized in the retina. And he told me that I had a disease of the retina and that there was no treatment. Mm -hmm. And I just could not believe what he was telling me. Sure. This, this can't be true. And he says, I'm really sorry, but uh, I really think that you're going to be blind within five years, totally blind. And what came into mind for me was I do not want to be led around by a guide dog. <laughs> and I well, do not. Yeah. No. I do not want to carry yeah. a cane. Yep. No way. I am not carrying a cane. Mm -hmm. And that was because? the first reaction that came mm -hmm. into my mind. And why did you feel that way? Do you, do you recall what, what spawned that? I think that uh, at our clinic, it was called the Center for the Partially Sighted, and we mm -hmm. specialized in, you know, adults with low vision. And there were so many people who came in with a cane and with a guide dog. And people would identify them right away as, oh, that blind guy with a dog or yep. that blind guy yep. with a cane. Yep. And I just really didn't like the way that people were, you know, just sort of generalizing them in that particular mm -hmm. way. Yeah. But it happened and to that be is, that. Yeah. It's probably one of, our, one of the biggest reasons that people don't get a dog. No. And one of our uh, orientation mobility specialists, a gentleman named Tim Heineman, one day he says, hey, Dr. Bill, hey, you want to go for lunch? I said, yeah, let's go. And so we went for lunch. And he says, hey, I want to show you something. We have this new type of graphite cane here. What do you think of it? And, you know, <laughs> unfolded it. And I said, 
wow, that is really light. It's it's nice. You know, you could fold it up and, you know, you could Hi, be in the restaurant. <laughs> uh-huh. He says, hey, well, let, let's go try it outside. What do you think? And I go, hey, you know what? This is really, really nice. He said, well, let, let's pretend that you were you were low vision and let me know what you think. And so he put a, a blindfold over me and we walked back to the office. And uh, I he was, got I you, was, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. And when I got back, I said, you know what? Hey, that is not bad. That is not bad. And uh, he says, hey, well, you know what? You really did great with it. And I said, well, how much do these cost? How much How much could I buy one for? He goes, oh, no, you wouldn't have to pay for one, Bill. I would get you one for free. And I said, well, I got to tell you something. I was just diagnosed with this disease. He goes, well, you know, to be perfectly honest, uh, LaDonna, she told me. <laughs> uh-huh. I uh-huh. said, you guys set up for those up. O&M people. <laughs> <laughs> they set it up so perfectly. Yep. But I have to tell you, of all the training, I want everybody to hear this, of all the different types of low vision training that I had, I value that orientation and mobility training the most. I mean, and I used I would bet it was the learning. hardest for you, too. You know, oh, um, oh yes, I, I I fell all the time. <laughs> I fell all the time, and eventually I said, you know what? I better use this cane in front of people. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I had the cane in my backpack, but I wouldn't bring it out. Uh-huh. But I, uh-huh. I started I started falling down steps quite a bit. Oh yes, and I, that happened to me. I, <laughs> I was I was a pretty high partial. I didn't have any depth perception, but I was a pretty high partial until in my early 20s. And I had oh. juvenile cataracts and secondary glaucoma. And I began losing vision. You know, with the glaucoma, things started blurring. I started having yeah. the halos and all those great things you have with glaucoma. And then started really noticing that the, the you know... Uh, Light was a problem if I had a lot of glare, things like that. And I moved to Columbus to get some rehabilitation training because I had never had O&M before. You know, I grew up in a small town where I could pass pretty much, um, and that was fine. But when I moved to the city, I, too, I remember walking into a plate glass window. That was exciting. Luckily, I wasn't going very fast. Just kind of bounced off of it, but I fell down some stairs and I said, all right, I have got to do something about this. This is ridiculous. I can't, you know, nobody's going to hire me for a job looking like this. You know, this is not going to work. So I went and got O&M training and I really wanted a guide dog. And at the time, this was back in the early 80s, a lot of O&M instructors and some guide dog schools, but not all of them, were looking at it and saying, well, you know what, you have too much vision. If you have any usable vision, you're going to either use it or you're going to use the cane because guide dogs are only for totally blind people. Well, I learned that wasn't true then, and it's not true now. And so if you are having difficulty 
with things like the, my biggest one was changing in lighting. If I went from light to dark or dark to light, forget it. You know, you yeah. remember those 10 me seconds too. of terror where you're thinking, <laughs> please don't let me run into, please don't let me fall or run into anything or... Oh, I took yeah. out so many store displays doing that. <laughs> Walk in and oop, even with the cane, because, you know, all right, yeah. I'm just holding the cane. I'm not using it properly because, all right, yeah. if, I have, if I have to have the stupid thing, you know. And that was where the dog really came in handy. And that was probably where I first started to kind of surrender and say, Okay, you know what? I've always wanted a dog, but I didn't realize why. And this is really why, is that I don't have to look down at my feet all the time to make sure I'm not going to trip over something, you know? Um, And that's what my husband says. He has the opposite kind of vision loss that I do. He has central vision loss. And so the dog takes care of all the things in the middle of his path so that he can use the sharper vision that he's got in the little holes on the sides to look at signage to, you know, kind of gauge where he's at. And as he tells everybody to look at sunsets and pretty women, and I want to find out where these women are, but um, (laughs) so I don't let him go out alone. (laughs) But. Yeah, but he said when he was between dogs and had to use a cane, it was a really jarring experience for him because he was kind of creeping along the wall because he didn't quite trust himself to get that middle part that the dog had always taken care of. So um, there are a lot of things, you know, can somebody have too much vision for a dog? Yes. And that's the thing that you really have to work with the guide dog training program on is how can I let go of, you know, and not try to try to see everything? Because we all know we do that, right? Yeah. Try to use as much of that vision as you possibly can, even if it gives you a headache, even if you get the halos or whatever, your neck is killing you, you know. But you'll do that because you think you have to. And so you need to let go of that, let the dog do its work, or when you really need it, like at night, if you have RP, and you see lights and a big black space, you know, that dog is going to be able to do what it needs to do to get you around all the street furniture and everything that you've got to walk around at night. Or on a bright day, if you have glaucoma, you know, that dog is going to be able to take over and do what it needs to do. But you have to let it do that and surrender having to look at everything and control everything. And that's probably the hardest part for somebody with partial vision, getting a guide dog. It, it all boils down to that. <laughs> wow. Now, when a person has just been diagnosed with low vision, what is actually the starting point for that person to be able to receive orientation mobility training or to be evaluated for a guide dog where starting point yeah where should they go if they don't live in a town that has a low vision agency well you're probably your first step in most places is going to be contacting your state organization for blind and low vision rehabilitation and that's different in every state and 
If you don't know how to find that organization, you can usually, if you live in a really small town, you can go to the Lions Club. They are very, usually there's somebody in the club who has a connection or who is familiar with that service. You can also go to your library. Um, often, eye doctors will have, as you probably experienced yourself, a little bit of knowledge about resources. Okay, well, we know there's a state agency that trains rehabilitation people and has them out there uh, to help you get back to work, etc. That's where you're going to start. And sometimes it takes people years of being low vision or of their vision failing because they have family members who can help them and help them to pass by doing some really subtle guiding and being their mm -hmm. human guide dog. But that puts a big strain on your family. So you want to think about how can I be independent and how can I be, you know, the person that I thought I was before all this happened. And your start is going to be going to that agency, establishing a case, actually saying, yes, I am legally blind. That's also another first step is being declared legally blind by an eye doctor because that is going to open a lot of doors for you. And this is the hard part because there are people with visual conditions that don't qualify as legal blindness, like maybe a field occlusion or something um, where they've got 50% of their vision is blocked. Well, legal blindness requires 80% of that field to be blocked. And they still have a lot of difficulty seeing. Could they benefit from a service dog with some guide work training? Sure, they could, but nobody trains for that. We've all kind of been programmed into the legally blind definitions. And that's kind of unfortunate because as we're finding, vision plays a big role in a lot of other disabilities like sensory processing disorder, which my husband has had he not had the injury that caused his actual vision impairment, that would be a big deal for him because it's a result of PTSD and some military service that he had. And so, you know, it's one of those things that happens to people. And sensory processing disorder usually means that when you're under stress, your senses, either hearing, vision, um, other senses are either super heightened or they disappear completely. And in his case, hearing and vision just go. And he's got nothing. And that's where he's really, he said he's really glad he's a guide dog handler because his dog can pick up on, you know, when these things are happening. Dogs can usually do that. They're not taught to, but they can. And, but if he were to just be, you know, your average person with this disorder, he wouldn't qualify for a guide dog because he's not legally or wouldn't be legally blind. So it's almost a lucky thing to get that diagnosis. And you probably know, Bill, that diagnosis is like you think at the time death sentence. You think, mm -hmm. yes, there goes everything. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so your, it's almost your the opposite. Case, <laughs> but your husband's case, he is not legally blind, but because he has the sensory process. Yeah, he is now. And in the process of losing vision, he had kind of a double whammy. He had an accident 
but he also had a genetic disorder that was triggered by the accident. The damage the disorder does is usually after trauma. And so this trauma created issues with his retinas and he ended up having a lot of central vision loss that looks like macular degeneration. And if any of yeah. you have PXE out there, um, you know, wave your hands around because that's what he has. It's pretty rare. Um, and the sensory processing was totally separate. And for years, he wasn't sure what was going on. He thought it was part of the whole vision loss cycle from the genetic stuff. But there was no symptomology that said, oh, and suddenly your vision will black out. You know, suddenly your hearing will go. These things will happen. No, that was a whole separate disorder. So that was sort of like the perfect storm of things. And once we found out what it was, that was really liberating, too, like being declared legally blind, because then we could go get services. We could go look at hearing aids and other kinds of things that might help it out. Wow, he has been through quite a bit, hasn't he? Yeah, <laughs> he has, but you know what? It didn't uh, definitely didn't stop him, and um, it definitely not. He worked for AT&T for 40 years and has been retired for a while now and uh, just did our re-landscape the whole front of our house last summer by himself. So <laughs> don't pity the man, please. <laughs> oh, and God. he cooks for me, so this is all good because my schedule is so crazy. He said, you know, I've been a house husband for a while now, which is fine. You know, that's cool. So. Oh, yeah. Hey, so yeah. when a person starts and they do go to their state agency, such as uh, the Department of Rehabilitation or what, whatever that it may be, they could then request that type of uh, training for orientation mobility, and they can ask about the guide dog. But, Janine, is there a fee to that? Does the person have to pay? No, no. There is no fee for that service. What the state agency will do typically is to sign you up for services. They'll do a lot of evaluations initially, which might mean sending you to a residential center. Of course, these days that's not going to happen. Um, but people will come to your home. There will be a lot of interviews, a lot of um, evaluations of what skills you might need, how you might need to learn to do things without vision. And one of those things is going to be orientation and mobility. And a lot of people will kind of look at that and go, oh, this is the this is the worst one. You know, you can teach me to cook and get around my house and sew on a button and all that all that stuff. But this whole O&M thing is really scary because you're really pushing yourself often beyond your comfort zone. And they will want you to get all of your O&M training first and be a safe traveler before you can apply for a guide dog because I, I love the analogy that one guide dog instructor uses. You have to learn to skate before you play hockey. No. And yeah, so this is kind of learning to skate, the, the whole O&M. And maybe you never play hockey, but you do know how to skate. And working with the guide dog is like my husband calls it driving a guide dog because it's kind of like driving a car you need to know where you want to go and when you're not going where you want to go because dogs are dogs 
and it's a 50-50 partnership. And so you, you want to have those O&M skills. Um, you don't have to be a super blind person with your cane technique. What you do need to do is be able to know where you are in space and a little bit about your environment, how to interpret things like the ground under your feet, uh, distances, how to interpret traffic and intersections because you're the one making those decisions, not the dog. Um, and you are telling the dog when it's safe to go and then the dog is actually letting you know when things become unsafe. You know, it sounds so simple the way that you're describing this. Uh, it makes me think like I could do well with a guide dog. <laughs> and I would say, you know, if you go to a convention, like a state convention of the American Council of the Blind or the National Federation of the Blind, often there are guide dog school representatives there, and sometimes they even have a demo dog. And that is probably the best way, honestly, to really get a feel for what it's like to work with a guide dog, is to have a demo. Some of the schools will even uh, have programs where you can actually go to campus and try out a dog. A couple of them have um, orientation and mobility programs. Um, Leader Dogs has one. I believe Guide Dogs for the Blind has one. And I think maybe Guiding Eyes has one even. But you basically go to the school for like a week and you get some advanced O&M and you get to walk with the dog. And then if you want to apply for a dog, you kind of get the fast track at that point. Uh, and you don't have to apply for it from that school. You can do it from another school. But you certainly have that recommendation and that kind of feel for what you're getting into. And I think that's a really good way to do it if you're able to. Yeah, that sounds great. You know, it's like a test drive, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely. It is absolute. In fact, that's what we jokingly call it. You know, when I used to do the convention booths and I had a demo dog, uh, one of my previous dogs was like the perfect demo dog. He just loved to do demos <laughs> with people. And uh, <laughs> this is quite funny. Uh, one year, my husband was walking because he had enough vision to do this. And he was walking behind the guy who was demoing, you know, working my dog. And they walked down. We were in Reno. And they walked down to the lower floor of the hotel where there was a casino. And they walked through the casino. My husband turned his head one time to see what he, his cane was hitting. And the guy took off. I mean, my dog just said, okay, you want to walk faster? Okay, let's go. And he looked up and they were gone. And he freaked out because he had lost my dog and this guy, you know. And the guy and the dog came back up to the table. And the guy said, here you go. That was really fun. Where can I sign up? And I said, where's Kent? Where's my husband? He said, I don't know. The dog just knew where he was going and came back upstairs. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's just say we had a little talk about demos after that. <laughs> Please don't lose my demo, people, honey. Um, <laughs> the dog got a big reward for that one, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, you know, Janine, one of the things that uh, you you had talked about was that you also help to match mm -hmm. the person with the right type of dog. And can you describe that a little bit? Is 
Is there something that we should be thinking about that we would want a particular type of dog or characteristics that would be better for us? Sure. Well, what you will do, Bill, when you think about getting a dog, you will apply. There's an application process for all of the guide dog schools. So you'll go through this process, and there's a, a paper slash electronic. I think all the schools have electronic applications now um, that you will fill out, and they're going to ask you a lot of questions. And also, you're going to call the school and talk to them and say, you know, what's your program like? How many days will I have to be there? Uh, now, the big question is, what are you doing with quarantine? Are you training me in my home? Do I have to go to the school campus? Uh, you know, will it be a little bit of both? And so you'll be asking these questions. And along the line, they're going to be asking questions of you. You know, how often do you get out and walk? Usually, they like you to go out at least three times a week, uh, minimum, for a walk of around an hour or a mile, or, you know, the, the schools have different qualifications, depending, and they'll work around any other disabilities that you have. If you have to stop during that walk and rest a little bit, they're going to be okay with that as long as you, you know, get out regularly and work your dog and walk it and make sure that you are making use of its skills so those skills don't deteriorate. And that also means going to places like shopping malls. Do you have children? Do you go to maybe your children's school where there are a lot of kids or grandkids running around? Um, we want a dog that's going to be good with that, really solid, uh, not wanting to play with the kids, etc. Do you have babies in your home? Do you have other pets? So there's this whole big interview process that they're going to do. Lots of schools come and do a home interview as well. Now, some of them are now doing those over Zoom because of COVID. So check and see what the routine is for that home interview. But what they're going to do when they do that interview, um, if they do it in person, often the trainer will come with a harness. And they'll do what's called a Juno walk or a test walk. And the trainer will pretend to be the dog. And they'll judge your pace and how hard you want the dog to pull on the harness to give you direction. And they'll do this when you get to the school as well. So they do it, oh, three or four times. You'll go for these test walks to make sure that the dog that they have for you matches your gait. It's going to walk just a tad faster than what you walk normally. Uh, and it's also going to pull the way that you would like it to pull. Maybe that's really hard. Maybe that's light. But they'll do all this testing for you. And I tell people, with your first dog, let the trainers choose. Just let them choose. You may have a favorite breed. Um, the big three, or actually the big four, are Labrador Retrievers are the number one. And that's because there's a lot of variety in the Labrador Retriever, from size to personality. Then Golden oh. Retrievers, now they're my favorite. I love Goldens. I've had four of them. And uh, love my Goldens. <laughs> love my Goldens. I'm right now waiting on a new dog. I retired my dog uh, this time last year, right before I, just as the pandemic was starting. So oh, waiting yeah. to get a new one. Yeah. So and, you've uh, been without a guide dog for a whole year? I've been without a guide dog for a whole year. And luckily I work at home. 
Uh, it's really sharpened up my cane skills, I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> but I do try to go out and walk, you know, at least a couple times a week, you know, for more than a mile or two, um, just to try to, you know, keep myself in shape and uh, get ready for that new dog. And part of the reason that I'm without a dog for so long is that the guide dog schools really were not uh, really starting, even starting classes back up until this past fall, many of them. And so, you know, they had a long period of, well, they didn't really know how to do it. You know, they couldn't have a lot of people together. And then different states had different infection rates of COVID. So it was really... You know, gosh, when is my school going to come back and how are they going to do it? Are they going to train everybody at home? Um, Guide Dog Foundation right now is training everyone at home. Um, the Seeing Eye, where I'm getting my next dog, they are having people come into class, but classes are half the size they usually are. And you have to be coming, you have to quarantine for 14 days right now in New Jersey before you can go into class. So there are all kinds of rules uh, and they differ from school to school. And so, you know, figuring out all that mess, COVID really kind of put a damper on my getting a new dog. That's why it's taken so long this time. But Uh yeah, so we got the golden retrievers. Then we have the lab golden cross, which is something that the Guide Dog Foundation brought to the United States from England in the 1970s. Uh, but this is like, honestly, and I'm so prejudiced because I've had an amazing one, but that is like the perfect guide dog. It's the best of both breeds. They're just, they're great dogs. I love lab golden crosses. And then there's the traditional German Shepherd, but there are only a couple schools that train German Shepherds anymore. And they're wonderful dogs, but they do because of all the inbreeding over the years and similar thing for Goldens. Uh-huh. They tend to have a lot of health problems, unfortunately. Oh. And so, yeah, yeah. And so it's really hard to have good German Shepherds. And um, the Seeing Eye has them. Fidelco has them. Guiding Eyes has them. I think maybe Leader still has them. But for a first dog, you can't go wrong with a Lab or a Lab Golden Cross, honestly, because they're very usually very forgiving. You know, they, they're just good solid dogs but i would say let your let your trainer pick and they are going to know you pretty well by the time they invite you to class uh to pick that perfect dog and some people say well you know we give the dogs that you know maybe aren't fully trained to partials because their vision can substitute and that's actually not true um, all the dogs are trained to the same standard. How much you use that dog's abilities depends on how much you use your vision and things like that. But that dog will step up, trust me. <laughs> God, that sounds great. I mean, it sounds really very, very easy, step by step. And you, you have guidance, so we mm-hmm. can't be concerned we're making the mistake of choosing yeah. the wrong dog. Well, yeah, exactly. What about what about the situation with having a veterinarian um, as the the types of dog food or the cost of dog food for some people with low vision who are not employed? You know, they're really struggling financially. Is there any assistance well, for veterinary medicine? 
That is a great question because when you are in training, part of your training goes over dog care. They're going to talk about dog food. Um, some of the schools have deals with the dog food companies where you can get reduced prices on the dog food. Many of like, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the name, Chewy, uh, which is a huge pet food site. Um, they have discounts for people with guide dogs. And veterinarians will often have up to a 100% discount for office visits. You'll still pay a little bit for some things. And then some of the guide dog schools also offer you a yearly stipend for medical bills and things like that. So that's another, yeah, see, they've got you covered because, you know, they want you to be successful with your dog. And they want the dog to stay healthy and they want you to know, and, and you can call the schools, most of them, you know, anytime you've got a question. And nothing is too stupid, believe me. I tell people, you know, the only stupid question is the one that you didn't bother to ask because, you know, you were embarrassed or whatever. So call them and ask questions and let them know that you're having difficulty maybe, you know, um, and they will help you. That's what the schools are there for. You know, we really live in a wonderful country right this country really mm-hmm. takes great care of us that is absolutely fantastic. and the really neat thing about the u.s is that you have a lot of choice when it comes to guide dog schools we have the most i think schools in the world um in one country and there are really small programs that are restricted like there's uh, acupause in uh Wisconsin and guide dogs of Texas that are limited to both those states. There are very small programs like Guide Dog Foundation, Southeastern Guide Dogs, um, uh, Guide Dogs of America that may have some limitations or really small classes. Then there are the larger schools. You know, do you want to train in San Francisco? Do you want to train in Oregon? Do you want to train in you know New York, um, New Jersey? Florida, you know, you have a lot of choices. And if you are denied by one school, they will usually tell you why they denied your application. Maybe you need to work on your orientation, or maybe you need to walk more or have more places to walk with the dog. Um, And you can work on that, but you can also always apply to another school. And that's, you know, definitely something you can do. So... We do have a ton of choices. We are very lucky here, I think, in that aspect. Yes, yes. Now, uh, Janine, how long do most people keep their guide dogs before they retire the dogs? And and if you do retire your dog, are you able to keep your dog, but maybe you just don't use it as a service Mm -hmm. dog? Excellent questions. The literature will tell you eight to ten years. I will tell you from practical experience with the guide dog school, five to seven years is usually the working life of a dog these days. They're subject to the same things that we are. Now, some of them will work a long time. My sister has a guide dog that she just retired at 14 and a half. And, you know, I have never had a dog work past nine. (laughs) So, um, and, you know, they joke that, well, you work your dogs really hard. I'm like, 
Oh, maybe, <laughs> you know, I don't know, but, um, but yeah, it's generally five to seven years. If you're in the city, it's more toward that five end, um, simply because traffic has gotten a lot more intense uh, over the years, so the dogs have a lot of things to contend with. Um, but depending on the school and how your contract with the school works, most of them will let you keep your retired dog. Some of them will take the dog back, and if you can't keep it, they will take the dog back, and they'll place it with a, an adoptive family that's chosen really carefully. Um, it, it almost takes more to adopt a retired guide dog than it does to actually get the dog in the first place. <laughs> and, and most people who adopt retired dogs are amazing. They do it because they really respect what that dog has done. And really want to give it a great home. So, you know, um, but I know a lot of people who keep their retired dogs. Um, I returned my dog to his puppy raisers because I knew that if I got another dog, he was not going to be happy. He was my little buddy. And he was not going to relinquish that to anybody else. <laughs> and, you know, um, yeah. now we have my husband's dog, who is ten and a half now. We have him here. And he is, we thought, oh, he's going to hate being an only dog. Are you kidding me? He loves it. <laughs> he's got, you know, both of us. I will occasionally take him out on walks just on his leash where he doesn't have any responsibility. And then my husband will work him, you know, to places like the grocery store and the doctor's office and Home yeah. Depot. Favorite dog place, Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Home Depot. What a great place. I love that store. Oh, my gosh. One of his dogs knew his way. My husband would just say, okay, let's go back to the paint. And, you know, <laughs> he had that dog. That dog knew where the paint was in that store, and they would go back to the paint. And let's go he look at the Home Depot. <laughs> he did. He, well, he knew that Home Depot. And that's the thing. You can teach your dog all kinds of things. Like, there are places you go a lot. You know, you can teach them the names of those places. You can use food rewards. You can use petting and play, whatever the dog likes. When they get to that place, you good, good paint, you know, or whatever you want to call it, you know. And uh, the dog will soon learn, and they will stop, and they will show you these things along the way. And that doesn't happen right away, but you can build it into the dog, and they really love it. They like to work. They like to please you. And they like to be with you. Oh, and, gosh. you know, but now, as a low vision person, you're out. You know, everybody knows, oh, that, well, they generally know that's one of those guide dogs. Now, some people don't get it. They just see dog. They don't see the harness. Oh, they also God. see you interacting visually. I'm going to give you the, the true hard part of having a guide dog. And that is you can't fold them up and put them away. <laughs> um, you will want to take them most places with you and work them. Um, and you will have family, friends, coworkers, people at church who will not like the dog, who will not want the dog in their car, who will not want the dog coming to church groups. And you will face this. Now, everybody faces that. But... I have actually heard people, and I, I've had, you know, grown men and women who were just the toughest people in the world, veterans who had seen combat, 
call up crying because their church, who was really supportive before they got the dog, now don't want the dog in the church, won't take the dog in the church van, don't want the dog anywhere near anybody. Really? I, yeah, it's it happens sadly more often than not. Um, it will happen to everybody at least once. I hate to say that, but mm-hmm. generally that's the case. And it's the hardest part of having a service animal of any kind is you know what that dog means to you. You may have the best relationship in the world. And when somebody says, no, you can't bring that dog in here or, well, you know, we really like you, Bill, but could you leave the dog at home? Because you really don't need it. We'll guide you around. You know, that dog is part of you. It's like saying that about one of your kids. You know, we like you, but we really don't like your kids. Leave them at home. You know? Oh, geez, that's, yeah. that's really that's difficult. The, yeah, that's the downside. And the good news about that is that you have people at the guide dog schools, usually they're graduates like me, that you can talk to, that you can vent and say, oh, what am I going to do with these people? You know, there are all kinds of groups online, um, on Facebook, uh, if you're in Clubhouse, there are even groups there. Um, there are groups on Zoom. There are state guide dog groups for ACB and NFB state and national guide dog groups of people you can talk to about this kind of thing because it's it's great and and just knowing other people are going through it makes it a little bit easier yeah that's great now you know a person because I'm very very interested now I already have a dog it's not a guide dog it's just our family dog is that permitted yeah, by most guide dog schools, it is permitted as long as your dog doesn't have issues with other dogs, you know, isn't maybe aggressive. And during that interview process, they're going to ask you about other pets in the home, like cats and things like that. Most guide dogs are raised in homes with other dogs and cats, and they're exposed to a lot of different animals and things like that. Some of the guide dog programs... Um, use prison programs to raise their dogs. You might have seen that on TV where the prisoners will raise the puppy, but then on the weekends that puppy will go out to a home where it has regular home experiences. And, excuse me, in those homes there may be um, cats and dogs and all kinds of things. Um, My nephew raised one of the prison puppies, and uh, his puppy didn't make it as a guide dog, but went on to be a detector dog out in San Francisco, and she actually works at the Google building. She's a security dog at the Google building, and they get all kinds of threats all the time, and she and her handler go out, and they check out areas for explosives and other things, and yeah, so... The dogs that don't make it often go on to other careers, and that's you know that's a really great thing because these dogs are bred for work. They enjoy doing things, and wow, the ones that don't become great pets. You know, that's really really nice. You know, I had uh, recently heard from one of our colleagues here that there are now computerized guide dogs are they robots or they are what what are they they are definitely working on that it's um the prototypes that they have and um they've made a couple of these in japan i think and they are robots um and they're 
you've got basically some capabilities that are built into canes, like the WeWalk cane. I don't know if you've talked about that particular cane or not, but that cane has a little thing that fits on the top of it that will detect obstacles. Um, it will uh, program GPS for you, so it'll uh, give you a route, and that's tied to your smartphone, of course. Um, then there are these different types of robots and different types of things. There was a pair of shoes, believe it or not, that had little uh, vibration devices in them. And if you programmed a route into your phone, the shoes would vibrate like when it was time to make a left or right turn. And I kind of said, oh, really, that's too weird. But I talked to an O&M person, and he loved them. He thought they were really cool. Oh, he did like it? Really? Okay. <laughs> um, whatever works. But, you know, I, I think we'd all love, well, we would be interested in a robotic guide dog only from the standpoint that we wouldn't have to feed it and it wouldn't pass away because that's super hard when yeah. your dog passes and, you know, that's oh, grieving a family member. Um, so having, you know, something that you only have to worry about replacing the batteries maybe. Um, yeah. Plus, there are people who are allergic to dogs, and for them, several of the schools train standard poodles, uh, which are big oh, poodles. Oh, they're the uh -huh. size of, you know, Labs and Goldens and Shepherds, and they're the original poodle. Uh, all the other poodles that we know came from that particular uh, type of dog, just miniaturized, as it were. Um, but for some people, also, religion is an issue with dogs. If you are of the Muslim faith, um, although depending on, you know, your particular imam and your particular mosque and things like that, um, there's an exception for service animals, but generally having a dog is going to be problematic, <laughs> especially if you're very active in the community. So what some people are doing is getting miniature horses and training miniature horses as guides. Now you're thinking, right, okay. A lot of people are training them as service animals too. Um, not my cup of tea, because I'd love to have a horse, but I want one I can ride. Um, and these miniature horses are the size of a very large Labrador, maybe 100 to 120 pounds, about 26 to 28 inches tall. You know, they're bigger than a, a dog. However, oh they are purported to live and work a lot longer. That hasn't really been proven because they haven't been around all that long. But, you know, for some people, that's a good answer. And, yeah. you know, if your religion is preventing, um, a lot of people now are using miniature horses as balance for balance. Um, oh, if they have okay. MS or something like that. And, you know, um, they're not guide dogs, but they're service animals. And they're grandfathered in under the ADA and now under uh -huh. the Air Carrier Access Act. So, there's, yeah, so you may, you never know. You, they may there's turn a up. lot of development there going on. Yeah, well, you, so, you know. Do you have time, Janine, to take some questions from our audience? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I would love some questions. Mr. Spangler, if you could open it up to questions and... Uh, we'll have Robert call on you by your telephone number or if he sees your name, but please. And I bet there are uh, some of you out there who have guide dogs <laughs> and <laughs> who have partial vision, and I would love to know, you know, if I've missed anything here. Oh, no, you have been fantastic. <laughs> this has been great. 
I have Leslie Spoon. Hey, Leslie, go right ahead. Hey, Leslie. <laughs> Guys, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, Janine, thank you so, so much. Um, I had low vision for a long time. I have no vision pretty much now, so um, I am thinking about getting a guide dog. I was thinking about before the virus happened, um, mm -hmm. thinking about it. So I just have one quick question for you because this was really sure. so, so much, a lot learned. Um and I'm really good. I walk, so I'm not. I'm not worried about the. I walk. was gonna say, I know you're in shape. <laughs> <laughs> that part, that part, I got down. Um, the part that that kind of worries me is the school. I've I've talked to many people over the years now because I've started thinking about it, like two years ago. I've talked to CCLVI people. I've talked to ACB people. You know, everybody. Excellent. Schools. So how do you how do you determine which school is one of my questions? Do I call? <laughs> And now do I go ahead and fill out a um, form to put myself in the in the pool, you know, to get in? Yes, I would say first talk to the schools and find out what they're all doing um, for the pandemic, because different okay. schools have different protocols depending on where they are. Right. And then you can kind of narrow that down to, okay, I'd like to go to Guide Dogs for the Blind, let's say. And it looks like their protocols are good. I don't know if they're having classes now or if they're doing home training. I honestly don't know all of the schools. I know a couple of them, but not all of them. Um, find out what they're doing. Find out what part of the country you'd like to go to. And then you can look at things like, okay, what other support does this school have? Do they provide a stipend? Do they give you ownership of the dog? For some people, that's important to actually have legal ownership of the dog. Um, what kind of field support do they have? Do they have a lot of uh, field staff who can come out and help you if you need it? So it sounds like I need to do some homework on some of the schools. Mm -hmm. Yep, okay. and you gotcha. can go often. Their websites tell a lot about them, um, you know, and you can also talk to handlers. You know, you're going to get kind of the same thing that you get with anything, you know, Apple, right. go Apple and Android. You know, just think uh, about that. Think about how okay. fiercely loyal people are. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I want to go somewhere that has a gym also. I can't go anywhere. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's the that's the other thing and you know yeah. because some of the schools do um, right. we looked at getting some exercise equipment when i was at guide dog foundation and we found out we had to get the commercial stuff mm -hmm. so what we started doing was doing training trips to the gym uh, okay and many of the schools do what's called freelance work which is after you get all the basics down then for yeah. the last part of class, they'll work with you on things that you actually do that may be a little unique, like going to the gym or going to a preschool or, you okay. know, uh, more grocery. Like my case, I don't have sidewalks in my neighborhood, so I need a lot of country work, um, what they call country work without sidewalks. Okay. And so that's what I'll be doing a fair amount of in the mm. suburbs. Well, thank you so so much for yeah. awesome. So, so I'll go put your for it and in the get oh, absolutely. Please, cool. please do. Thank you and so there much. Are, yeah, do. there are a ton of groups out there that yeah. can help. And I would say, I you know, do. join join Guide Dog Users Inc. or join uh, NAGDU for NFB. Join one of the groups and just say, Hey, tell me about your experience in the last year. 
with the school because okay. things changed quickly at schools and especially over the pandemic. It's been so even though I don't have a guide dog, go ahead and join GDUI. That'd be yep. fine. Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. You're going to get a lot of good input there. And, you know, uh, many of the schools also have videos online. I know Guide Dogs for the Blind has all their training material online, their lectures and everything. So you can kind of get a look at what you're getting into. And some of the other schools have that as well. And then once you fill out that application for other schools, that gets you into, you know, the student area of their website. So, yeah. Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. I say go for it. You'd be a great handler. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Great question. Charlene? Yeah. Yes, I am a partial using a guide dog. When I got my first dog, I saw at 2200 and... I never realized how blind I was until I used my dog. And mm-hmm. my dog for stuff, and I'm going, why are you stopping? I went, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that I was totally unaware of. I had people call me, tell me how, oh, you almost got hit by this car, and your dog did. And I went, oh, really? <laughs> uh, uh-huh. Yeah, out of sight, out of mind. I didn't realize any of that. One of my big things to tell partials is to let the dog do the work. And yep. I had very glad that somebody told me this use your dog as if you didn't so even though I know I'm at a curb because I know my dog is stopped I can tell him that Mm -hmm. I still slide my foot forward the reason being is if I help out my dog during my seeing times my dog Mm -hmm. isn't going to understand that when now it's dark and I don't see or (laughs) I don't see or whatever and they're going to before that low branch is okay, so what's the problem now? And yeah, yeah, what do you mean so, you didn't see it? It was right there. Yeah. And I used my eyesight yeah. for looking around yeah. and doing other things, and I let the yeah. dog do the job. One of the things it. the guide dogs do is give you mobility without stress. Yes, you, there you go. That's you exactly go what my husband says. Yeah, can go anywhere. I get, I've had dogs, I've used dogs since 1975. I was going to say, I have known you quite a while, Charlene, and you have used dogs for a long time. Oh, yeah. And the Goldens are my favorite. I've had six. Um, Oh, wow. But um, you have to, you know, let the dogs do the job. And they do. They give you mobility without stress. And it's like I went to Washington, D.C. knowing nothing other than Mm -hmm. I knew the Curbs were crazy, and a lot of other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but the dogs know how to go to that other side and where that they can put it where they want. The dog still knows how to go to the right corner. And yep. nowadays I hear, oh, well, if you're using a new route, well, use your cane and go check out the route, and then, then go use your dog. I'm going, why mm-hmm. am I doing that? Because my dog knows it. I trust my dog sure. 100%. Yep. And you have to do that. You have to trust your dog first. Boy, you just hit on the big word, Charlene, because as my first instructor said way back when, trust is a must or the walk is a bust. (laughs) That was his saying. People who think they know better have found themselves in legs. um, Yeah, been there, done that. (laughs) um, Our shaft, I mean, because he thought the door was open, his dog wouldn't go in, and so he was going to force, you know, so he's going to drag it in. And the dog yep. portion was big enough to pull his ass back. 
and saved uh-huh. him. Uh-huh. I'll never do that again. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I so actually fell into Seriously? a retaining but, pond because I wasn't trusting my dog. I had enough vision when I got my first dog to see that, you know, the light was reflecting off the pond and it was green trees. And I thought, oh, it's just grass. What are you stopping for? And two steps and in I went. And the dog oh. happily jumped in after me and said, oh, well, we're going swimming. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That was embarrassing. And the, oh, dogs yeah. can, the dogs can do work in almost any situation. I've had dogs that mm-hmm. camping. I've done all kinds of stuff. Yep. You name it, I've done it. And the dogs mm-hmm. can do it. Um, it's like kids, they live up to your expectation or down mm-hmm. to it. Now, have you had any vision loss while having your dogs, Charlene? Yes. Um, I used to see about 20 over 200, like I said. I'm down to about 20 over 800. So... Mm-hmm. The thing and is, your dog's adjusted, it, right? Yeah. Um, yep. The thing is, I've I've never trusted my vision after I figured out it wasn't that great with my first dog. Mm-hmm. And so, losing the vision isn't that big of a deal. What's a little bit more, you know, a little less detail. It's about all I can tell mm-hmm. you. Um, mm-hmm. Some things are get a little harder, but you know, for the most part, especially mobility, isn't that big of a deal for me. Um, with a dog because I trust the dog to get me from point A to point B and it's yep. my job to know Absolutely. how to get to point B. So we work mm-hmm. as a team and I give commands and the dog decides if I'm if it's safe to follow my command. That's how it works. Yep. Yeah, you pretty much you just gave my talk there. <laughs> but but you you really affirmed everything that I said, Charlene, because it, it's all exactly what you said. And if you're worried that your condition is progressive, your dogs will adjust. Um, mine oh. did until I had no more vision. They adjusted after my inoculation surgeries when my balance was terrible. You know, for a while they adjusted to that. Um, but they they really can adjust. Are, people, they'll even yeah. pick up on different shoes you're wearing and walk different. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Charlene. I have Beth. Hi, Beth. All right. Well, thank you for such a great presentation. And I have a question which has been bothering me for a while. Sure. There are some dogs who do not, the dogs have to be trained first. There are some dogs mm-hmm. who do not make it because, say, they fear traffic. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's true, then they're dump from the program because you, you can't have a guide dog that's afraid yep. of traffic. Yep. What about it. all of the seniors who live in senior facilities who have no desire to be crossing streets, but they would love to have mm-hmm. a dog to walk around their facility with, to go to meals, to, you know, mm-hmm. exercise. What I, It really bothers me that these dogs, now I, I understand that, that Sometimes they are placed in different agencies like police. But why couldn't some of these dogs who are afraid of escalators or traffic or whatever it is that scares them, why could they not become guide dogs for the senior population who wants to exercise in a senior facility? That is a great question. And it's one of the things that Guide Dog Foundation did, why they formed their sister organization, America's Vet Dogs, because we had a lot of dogs 
that weren't making it for whatever reason. And this is typical of the guide dog schools. Um, less than 50% of the dogs that start out as puppies in the program actually make it to being a trained and graduated guide dog with somebody. So what do you do with all those other dogs that may be really great except for that one thing? Well, we decided to use them as service dogs and train them for service dog tasks. And a lot of them became PTSD dogs, which they had tasks that they do for their veterans and are able to go out in public, but they don't have the responsibility of guide work. And guide dogs have probably the most complicated job of any service dog because what they have to do, they have to do independently you know, they have to react to things that we don't know about. So they have to have the fortitude to do that and also the flexibility to obey our commands when we're giving them directions, you know, and trying to get them to go places that they don't want to go, like back home after a really nice long walk. <laughs> I had one dog who, you know, my home disappeared, <laughs> and I knew we were walking right past it. So, um, but... You know, it's this kind of balance. And there are also some schools, I believe Gallant Hearts, um, which is a school down in Mississippi. They are placing dogs with seniors. Um, the tough thing about senior facilities is that depending on the facility, sometimes it's really hard to keep the other residents from interfering with the dog's work, overfeeding the dog, things like that. Um, however, that said, there are people who adopt these dogs who then get them their credentials to be therapy dogs at different facilities. And that was some of the things that our service dogs started out doing was physical therapy, helping people walk after a stroke or after, in the case of veterans, after battlefield injuries. And it was much better to be able to walk with a dog than to have somebody holding on to you you know, to help you walk. It was a lot more um, motivational to do that. And so I think more and more of the schools are using the dogs. I know Guide Dogs for the Blind has a program where some of their dogs will be buddies for kids, for blind kids, so that they can have a pet that is oh. easy to control. It's already been trained. It doesn't guide, but it's easy for the child to handle. And so, you know, and a lot of those kids go on to, to get guide dogs when they grow up. So there are all kinds of ways that the schools are realizing to make use of these dogs. So it's a it's a valid concern, Beth, and the good news is that the schools are, are recognizing it. And but there's really, no and I, I, I like all of that, but there's no mm -hmm. there's nothing there's not there's no thought to the dog let let's let's say that again, if the dog's afraid of traffic, well I'm not going mm -hmm. to be going in traffic. I'm going to be walking right. around my senior facility, visiting mm -hmm. friends, going to meals, going mm -hmm. on walking paths. Is there any use? Mm -hmm. Is there any thought given to saying, okay, this dog can be a guide dog? Mm -hmm. uh, but we, we did do it a couple to... times. Yeah, we did do it a couple times. Um, is it a legal thing? Is it, is it a... Um, not really a legal thing. Often what we find with the dogs that... that don't pass due to serious traffic issues that those issues come up around noise and it's about noise and so one firecracker one car backfiring and you have a dangerous situation where the dog might bolt and if you're older you could fall you know there are all kinds of mm -hmm. things like that um but you 
you know, depending, and who knows, you know, the schools may do this, like the Gallant Hearts model. Um, talking to Bob Acosta, who had just received one of the Gallant Hearts dogs for he and his wife, they're not out doing a lot of the things they used to do, but this dog has some special training to be able to work with them and the things they can do, which is a great thing. So, you know, I think the schools are coming along with that idea and saying, okay, you know, these dogs are wonderful, plus the whole therapy dog thing for Mm -hmm. retired dogs. I know my retired dog um, has his therapy certificate, but because of the pandemic, he can't go anywhere. (laughs) So, yeah, he and uh, my puppy raiser, his puppy raiser has two other goldens. So the three of them will go, would go out and do therapy dog things. when they're able to again, I'm sure they'll be very excited mm-hmm. about doing that again. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you, Janine. I'm really enjoying this. Sure. Thank you, oh, Beth. Thank you, Beth. That's a great idea. Yeah. Tom Lelos. Janine, I've really enjoyed your presentation. It's just chock full of useful information. Thank um, you. I, 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 I've been exposed in the last few months to a few ladies on some of our other chat calls that have dogs. And I've become aware of something that I need to brush up on. Uh, And I've had O&M training, but because I never go anywhere unless I'm with somebody. And so the orientation part of that equation, I've got real lax in, and and you kind of punctuated it, you know, with with your statement that you have to know where you're going, your dog will get you there, and, and and I get that. But as I, I'm kind of leading up to my concern here, as we get older, I might find myself in a situation where I survive my wife. And mm-hmm. so then I have to make a decision. Am I going to be able to make it on my own? At what point do I get mm-hmm. a dog uh, like that? And, 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 then, and then kind of an extension of that where I live in Wyoming, I hang around with guys that we go riding in the mountains. Uh-huh. If I were to get a guide dog, uh, how would that work if I'm on a horse or a mule mm-hmm. going in the mountains? Uh, uh, do I just have my guide dog travel along with us, just like one of the other dogs that we take in the mountains with us? Or, you know, does that become problematic? So you probably, yeah, those are great questions because they're lifestyle questions. And I know there are a lot of folks who get dogs who work with horses. And so depending on the program that you apply to, you can ask them because different programs have different opinions. And I know what I would probably do as a handler would be to ask them to please work with the dog around a horse because the dog's not going to be guiding, of course, when you're on horseback. That's right. But you would have maybe a long lead, a flexi lead or something like that, that you would have the dog on so it could stay right there with you and close to the horse. You know, make sure that your uh, horse is safe around dogs, too. Um, I used to ride, and one of my horses hated my guide dog. She would just reach down and grab her by the scruff of the neck. <laughs> Don't even think about licking me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so I was they, they stayed away just, from each other, but yeah. I was thinking more, just not even the least, just, you know, like I said, mm-hmm. we, we take dogs with us when we go to the mountains, and 
They're just trotting along, you know, in and amongst the horses. They're on the trail, and away we go. Would a guide dog respond to that? Um, they would, but I will tell you, mm-hmm. consider your guide dog like you would a a really serious, seriously expensive piece of equipment, because yeah. these dogs cost around seventy five thousand dollars to raise and train from puppyhood <laughs> all the way up, and so yeah. you've got a performance machine here, and hence okay. the leash, because yeah. yeah, it's really easy, especially if there are other dogs on the yeah. trail. Yep. While that you know that dog bolts or that dog you know comes into contact with a snake that's a little further off the trail than you yep. are, yep. Um, all kinds yep. of bad things can, that happen. can happen. And yeah, absolutely. And so you really want to, in anything you do like that, consider the dog's value, um, because that's a good they will tell you. Yeah, they will tell you. You know. Please, this dog is very, very valuable. What it does, and and its value appreciates over time because, of course, they learn more. They become more specialized to the way that you do things. And honestly, a dog that could run trails with you like that, that would be invaluable. Then, you you know, you get off your horse, you put the harness on the dog, and away you go. And, boy, that would be huge, you know, um, to have a dog that could do that and could learn to do that. And there would be a school out there, you know, many of them might say, well, no, we can't do that. That doesn't sound safe. But yet, it may be very safe. So keep asking and keep looking around because that could definitely happen. Now, with your first question about keeping your orientation, practice. Practice now. Practice now. That might mean going out by yourself, but that also might mean saying to your wife or whoever you're with, look, can you let me just direct you? Because I need to practice my orientation. Let me just direct you when to turn, where to go, you know, or keep track in your mind. Okay, we came into this restaurant. The door yeah. is behind me, you know. Yeah. Keep track of where everything is. No, and I, I that's don't mind that. The best way to start. Yeah. I don't mind that with structures and buildings and stuff. But I, mm-hmm. I'm talking about you know outside. Uh, Yep. You know, sidewalks and even more more importantly more rural environment yes you know and, yep. and and that brings me to a question about the different guide dogs do they train or accentuate training for dogs who may be more in a rural environment versus an urban environment yes okay yes and that's going to be part of that whole application process where you say you know what I'm mostly in a rural environment. I've got dirt roads. I've got hiking paths. Yeah, I've got yeah. all these places. And we're going to be patterning the dog. And that may mean a home training, you know, where you pick a school that will come and train in your environment, you and the dog, so that the trainer can pattern the dog to different places in your home environment. And that way you can take advantage of some of the terrain features and things like that to keep track of where yeah. you are. And also, we've got a lot of travel aids now, um, lots of GPS programs. I, I'm a big fan of Soundscape from Microsoft because you can use that with, like, a bone conduction headset so you can hear everything around you and still get that GPS information. And I like it because if something is coming up on your left, like a street, you'll hear it in your left ear. If it's coming up on your right, you're going to hear it on your right. 
And I just, I really appreciate that. But there are a lot of GPS programs, too, that you can use with your phone to help with that orientation piece. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Well, good luck. That sounds like so much fun, riding out in the mountains. That does sound like a lot of fun. Let's see, Robert, I think we have time maybe for one more question, but I just want to say, Tom, I would have to say you have one powerful horse because you're about, what, six foot eight, <laughs> 300 pounds of muscle? Will you, will you quit? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> you think I'm Paul Bunyan or something. Oh, no, you are. I, <laughs> I don't know. I've seen some pretty small horses that could handle that, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I have Charlene again. Yeah, I have actually one question for you, Ginny. Um, because of the TSA and the um, forms that we have to fill out. Yeah, yeah. I wondered who was going to ask about this. <laughs> well, my question is, it wants to know my dog's name. I don't know why they need my dog's name. First of all... They do not need your they, dog's name. These these forms are... Oh, they're making me yeah, crazy. Was that was not at all what... Because yeah, I don't give out my dog's names. I no. don't give people a phony no. name for my dog. No. Because I don't and, want and I would. Saying, and I would absolutely suggest that because oh, there's I no reason for them to need to know your dog's name. There's no reason for a lot of that information on the form. I don't know how it got on there. Um, yeah, they part of it, honestly, anyway. like, they yeah, aren't going to be able to defend my dog because she's trained to right. listen to me well, and not other people. Because yeah. people out on the street that think that they are supposed right. to right and the only reason in as much as i know about it the only reason that they're asking for the name is to try to catch the fraudsters who forgot what they called the dog the last time you know and oh. to keep track of individual people and individual dogs when it comes to fraud now, yeah, they're gonna, they're why we are fraudsters. all getting punished for the fraudsters yeah. is a whole other point of contention. The original form, and a lot of the language on that form was language that uh, another advocate and I had suggested to them. However, the only things that were supposed to be on that form were supposed to be uh, statements about, you know, I am a person with a disability who requires this dog to assist with my disability. Check. You know, I am responsible for the dog's behavior. Check. And then sign your name. And that right. was all it was supposed to be. How it has mutated into this, give me the name, the weight, the position. My the vet's airlines name, my vet information. Opted, yeah, the airlines opted for that because they said, well, it will help us choose a seat. Well, most of the advocates loudly objected to that over DOTs, you know, whatever they ended up deciding, because we know best where our dogs can sit on the airlines. Um, there is no federal requirement to sit in bulkhead. You can sit wherever your dog will fit. In fact, they're safer not in bulkhead. So, you know, there are some problems with these forms, absolutely, and DOT is well aware of them. The airlines are adding things to the forms that do not need to be there. So I would say get involved with the advocacy of the service dog organizations, you know, GDUI, NAGDU, um, IAADP, any of the service dog organizations, not to exempt guide dogs from the forms. I, I'm really no. against that because that's not fair. That's not fair. 
Yeah. But to say, make these forms make sense. You do not need to know my dog's name. You don't need to know my dog's breed. You don't need to know their weight unless I'm flying on a 16 passenger plane. You know, you really don't need to know my dog's weight. Um, and then asking and, asking for my yeah. dog's veterinarian isn't going to do any good because my vet won't tell me a damn thing. Well, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. And the reason that they're doing that is to verify vaccination records, which, again, really silly. Now, well, they don't succeed at it. Yeah. Um, Here's my prediction. Here's my prediction when it comes to those forms, Charlene. I think that in about a year, they're going away. And they're going away voluntarily because most of the airlines, it's too big a pain in the butt to check these forms. And once people understand that, no, I'm not getting on this airplane with my fake little yappy dog, you know, and the airlines aren't going to permit that, then uh, I'm betting the forms are going to go away. And for most of us with guide dogs, if you are recognizably blind, they're not asking you anyway at this point. Yeah. Real quick That's for where the, the marshals have it hard. <laughs> well, real quick for the lady who was thinking about nurses, what about cleaning up after the dog? That's one problem that people who are in nursing homes. Um, yeah, that's a, care that's facility, a tough one. Um, yeah. Are going to have problems with because you have to bend down and pick it up. That and, can be a tough one. Um, although there are some um, senior living situations where you can have pets and the pet pickup is kind of part of your too. So I know we have a community like that uh, close to where I live here, and uh, they make that part of the fee. If you want to have pets, you can have pet cleanup services um, and things like that. So, you know, there are, there are ways around it, believe it or not. Well, thank but. you, Beth, very much for that question. And Janine, I really, really mean it. This has been a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful presentation. Well, now we have, we, to, love- we have to come back and talk about Ira again, Bill. Yeah. yeah, that's my new job now. So <laughs> we're going to have to have you come back. And if anybody wants to get in touch with you, do you have a, a web address or an email? Um, I have an email, and it is Janine MS. So Janine McEwen Stanley is what the MS is for at iCloud.com. And if there are any Braille users in the audience, it's J-E-N-I-N-E. You'll never forget how to spell my name in Braille. (laughs) But if you are a large print person, yes, it is J-E-N-I-N-E. M as in Mary. S as in Stanley. Oh, sorry. Excuse me. Um, At iCloud.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, and we're going to have Ooh, to have you, you back, okay? <laughs> definitely, I would love to come back, because we got to talk about IRA and low vision, because very similar thing to guide dogs and low vision. Okay, Why would we I will. Why that? <laughs> we'll do that. Okay, thank you very Great. much. Everyone take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.